This morning I want to start by going to the Lord in prayer. But what I want to do is I want to go to the Lord in a manner in which often we do at the end in the invitation. But I want to do this in the beginning. And what I'd like you to do is, is I'd like you to, in the prayer, if you guys would bow your heads, I'd like you to be the ones praying to the Lord in silent right now as we begin our work of who He is this morning and who He created us to be. And so what I would like you to do is, is first off, is as you close your eyes, I would just like you in silence to the Lord, just praise Him and thank Him of simply for being who He is. Praise Him and thank Him for who He is. second thing I want you to do while your eyes are closed and you're praying to the Lord is, is I want you to confess any sin or any distractions that have clouded hearing God's voice in your life. Just go to the Lord, ask him to search you, to reveal to you maybe any hidden sins or thoughts or motives in your heart that have been distracting you from hearing God's voice speak to you. Confess them. Next, I'd like you to ask God through the Holy Spirit, ask Him to speak to you this morning through His Holy Spirit, through His Word. Ask Him to speak to you what He wants to communicate to you. And now... Just simply be still and let God speak to you right now. And that's basically, thank him. Thank him again for who he is. You can open your eyes. This morning, if you have a Bible, if you would, open it up to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. I like to use the English Standard Version. And so if you, if you have your Bibles, open it up to Romans 8, 1 to 17. We're going to actually start, though, I'm going to be in Romans chapter 7, looking at the end of chapter 7 in verse 21. Uh, before I read the passage, though, I'd like to give you a little background the Apostle Paul is writing to this newly converted Gentile Christians in Rome. And although he has never met with them face to face, yet his desire is that he would soon be able to be with them in person. Essential to understanding Paul's passion behind this, un- behind this letter is understanding the Lord's call on Paul's life. In Acts 9.15, we learn that Paul was called by the Lord to be God's chosen instrument to proclaim his name before the Gentiles. 
In Galatians 1, 15 and 16, we see further evidence of this call on Paul's life in which we learn that Paul was set apart by the Lord even before he was born by God's grace to proclaim the Lord among the Gentiles. Then in Romans 15, verse 16, we learn that Paul was to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and so they could be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So what the scripture teaches us so far with what we're going to learn this morning is therefore as Lord's as the Lord's chosen instrument to proclaim the gospel message to the Gentiles. Paul is passionately writing this letter to the Romans to make sure that these young Gentile Christians fully understand what it means to be a disciple of Christ, what it means to be a Christian. The tension, the tension that lies at the heart of Paul's plea in our passage this morning is adequately wrapped up in Romans 7, 21 to 24, and in which I would add is also what I believe is the cry of every Christian sitting in this room, those who are watching online as well, including the cries of my own heart. So I find this law at work. I want to do good. Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, this law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? As we prepare to read and study, which I'm going to focus on this morning in Romans 8, 1 through 17, I pray that within that backdrop you hold this tension which lies at the heart of what it means to be a Christian and what it looks like to live this out daily. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that my words would be few and that your Holy Spirit would equip and speak to every heart present, those who are in this room, those who are listening online, with the message that they need to hear and receive for their life. I pray they could imagine themselves watching and listening on as these Gentile Roman Christians would receive this, they would read it for what Paul wanted to communicate to them. I pray we would often reflect and think about what would Paul write and say to us today if he were to write to us as well. And so, Father God, guide our study of the text. Let your Holy Spirit speak to each of us individually and corporately as a church. This I pray in Jesus' name. In Romans 8.1, if you have that, look in the text. Paul begins with this powerful statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I really believe this is a message Christians need to remind themselves of often. Paul is laying a foundation in which they can achieve victorious Christian living with new life and new hope through the Holy Spirit. Paul's use of the word now is important. What this means is that they are no longer in bondage to their flesh, which he vividly described in the passage I read a moment ago in chapter 7. 
uh, throughout our passage and study this morning, we're going to see this major theme of what it means to be sanctified in Christ develop. We're going to see evidence in our text of sanctification as this positional event that has taken place definitively for all of us who are believers in Christ Jesus, along with this ongoing progressive continual process that is grounded in Christ's work on the cross and our union with Jesus. At this point, I think it is important for us to understand the three necessary elements in sanctification. First, sanctification can only occur in the context of a growing union with Christ. We will not grow unless we are identified with Jesus. Second, we are truth. The Bible is one of the chief means where God sanctifies his people. Do you know that you gathered here together as a body of believers in Jesus Christ corporately are sanctifying one another? The way you love one another, the way you are compassionate towards one another, the way you're gentle towards one another, the way you're kind towards one another. Do you know that the way we discipline one another? The way that we speak truth in love to one another is part of this sanctifying process. Do you realize that all of us gathered in this room corporately have a responsibility to be sanctified as a church together in Christ Jesus? Lastly, faith is means by which we appropriate our sanctification. Faith helps us to live in union with Christ, except the fact that that we are no longer mastered by sin, and the results is the production of the fruit in the Christian's life. Sanctification comes by faith in Christ Jesus. With that understanding, a Christian can thus conclude that positional sanctification, that event, that beginning of the process that occurred through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, and then progressive sanctification is the continual maturing of the new person who was created positionally through Jesus. Throughout the remainder of the text, Paul is going to explain the implications of what this means and how this is going to be lived out in the life of a Christian and how it can be lived out in the life of a church. At this point, the question that I have pondered a thousand times as I have been studying on sanctification through my Master of Divinity class uh, in the beginning of January, and as I've been preparing to preach this message, this question has come to my mind over a thousand, thousand times. Do I fully understand that I have not earned in any capacity my right standing with God by any kind of work that I have done? Do I really grab hold of what that means? Do I really get that truth? Paul is communicating here. In the next set of verses, Paul 2 through 4, Paul is going to explain how this positional sanctification occurred for the Gentile Christians in Christ Jesus. Listen to Paul's words as I read 2 through 4. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according 
to the Spirit. You see, Paul starts off by saying how they have been set free from the law of sin and death. The freedom in which Paul is referring in verse 2 is indicating that he himself has been delivered in Christ and through the Holy Spirit from the law of sin and death. Paul's going to unfold and unpack this through five main expressions we see in verses 2 through 4. So they understand what this fully means. In verse 3, we see that God sent His own Son. Through this, God was expressing His sacrificial love for you and I. Second, the blessing of divine Son involved His becoming incarnate, a human being which expressed by the words, in the likeness of sinful man, or better, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Third, we see God sent His Son to be a sin offering to the atonement. Fourth, we see that God condemns sin in sinful man, that is, in the flesh or in the humanity of Jesus, by judging our sins in the sinless humanity of His Son, Jesus, who bore them in our place. Last, we see that Paul clarified the ultimate reason that God sent His own Son and condemned our sin in Him, in order that we may attain His righteousness, so that we can stand before our Heavenly Father with no condemnation. I want to pause. I want you to think about that for a moment. If that is not one of the most glorious statements spoken in the Bible, I don't know what is. We stand right before our Heavenly Father, our Lord and Savior, because of what Jesus Christ did for you and I on the cross. How should we respond? How do you respond to that news? The woman at the well, she ran back. She went to tell everybody about Jesus. The man with the demons, he went over and he told this entire region, ten different cities in the Decapolis, told them everything about how Jesus changed his life. This sinful woman, she brought this alabaster flask of ointment. Can you picture her right now? She's weeping with tears falling on Jesus' feet while she's wiping with her hair Jesus' feet. These Pharisees are looking on at her, and here she is, weeping, surrendering, because she's embraced and fully understood what Christ has done for her. Who do you think Jesus was to her? Close your eyes for me, if you will, for a moment. Christian, for those in the room who have surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, do you remember that day? Can you remember it vividly when you surrendered your life to Jesus? Do you remember the joy that infiltrated your heart? Do you remember how you wanted to tell so many other people about Jesus Christ and who He is? Is that the same joy you have right now? What happened? What's got in the way of that joy? Why? If it's not still there, why isn't it still there? You can open your eyes now. This past tense action of God should be at the heart of the gratitude of everything we do as believers in Christ. 
We can never forget what he did for us through his son. Paul moves on to explain in verses 5 through 17 how God is going to keep them sanctified. Listen here as I read 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, they set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. First, notice that Paul explains to them that God bestows a new mindset upon the Christian through the working and the gifting of the Holy Spirit. He is wanting them to know that they are no longer living controlled by their old sinful nature, but they are now living controlled by the Holy Spirit. Their old mindset that was dominated by the flesh, that let it's no longer controlling them. The new mindset that's controlled by the Holy Spirit is leading them to life and peace. Many theologians have asked the following question regarding Paul's presentation in this section. But word it like this, is, is Paul describing the contrast that exists between a non-Christian, an unbeliever, somebody who hasn't surrendered their life to Christ, and a Christian? Is asking to, or is, is Paul speaking about the situation of Christians who, who retreat back into this old sinful way of living? In a manner of living that's controlled again by their sinful nature. Who is he really speaking to? According to theologian Douglas Moo, Paul's assessment of persons apart from Christ may be justly summed up in the theological categories of total depravity or total inability. Moo would clarify that what is meant by total depravity is that every person apart from Christ is thoroughly in the grip and the power of sin. In which he concludes that Paul is clearly accusing all non-Christians of having a mindset, a total life direction that is in, innately hostile to God. Not only won't it submit to God, but it simply can't. It cannot submit to God. I think it's crucial to clarify here that all people by nature derived from Adam are incurably bent towards their own good rather than the good of others. Or of God. In fact, I think we can say that the various things to which we are attracted, the desires of wealth, the station in life, our position of power, sexual pleasure, are but different symptoms of the same sickness, this idolatrous bent towards self-gratification. In verse 8, Paul plainly shows that no person can rescue himself as long as that person is in the flesh, only the Holy Spirit can rescue him because he is totally unable to please God. How does this teach us how we should view an unbeliever, somebody who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Why is it important to remember this? Have you ever caught yourself getting angry or upset with somebody who's an unbeliever for simply being an unbeliever. You find yourself on social media. Maybe there's people who are lost who don't know Christ and you get angry. 
You get upset. Maybe you get hostile. Should this impact in any way how we pray for them? Should this impact in any way how we minister to them? Through God using this discipline of running in my life over the last, I don't know how many months during COVID since May, and my love for sports, I've had the opportunity lately to go out to Lockwood Folly to the basketball court and uh, to invest in some of the young men uh, that come out there and play. I've also had the opportunity to invest in my buddy uh, Joel Johnson's basketball program called the Powerhouse Warriors. You know, I see the people I go out to the park with with a different set of eyes. I don't go out there and try to fix them. I go out there and I try to show them Christ. Because I want them to have what I have. I want them to have what I have. In fact, as I was preparing this sermon, my son wanted to go hit some baseballs. And so as he was hitting baseballs with a friend, I sat my laptop out there right near the court. A couple of the young men came up to me. One, a high schooler, plays on the baseball team at West. Another young man. And they just started telling me stories. Stories about how they come from fatherless homes. Stories about how they don't really have somebody there right now to help them. Your heart can't break or can't weep enough for some of these young men. Believers, what are we doing? When we get caught in quarrel fighting with one another. When we have lost people who desperately need Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior all around us. Why do we argue about the wrong things? Why don't we focus on the main thing? I paused. I could have stayed busy in my sermon prep. But I went to hear their stories. People matter. In the next set of verses, Paul speaking directly to the Gentile Christians. He's explaining to them that they have also received from God through the Holy Spirit a new sense of life. Listen to Paul's words in verses 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of Jesus dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Can you picture with me in your imagination, Paul, now speaking directly to them, pleading with them, reminding them with the words he's emphatically speaking, but you, but you, Christians, you are not flesh you are in the spirit by your union with christ you no longer belong to that old age of sin and death you now belong to this new age of righteousness and life as i ponder this set of verses i pictured in my mind memories of when i would mess up as a young child or as a teenager and my father would say son that's not how a borton would act remember what the name borton means Now go, 
and act like it. To every Christian present in this room and for those Christians watching online. You have been redeemed by Christ. You have been given the free gift of the Holy Spirit that has given you a new mindset, a new sense of life and a new direction. Are you living like it? What do you think Paul would write to you right now if he was writing this letter to you? How would he exhort you? In the next set of verses, Paul explains the implications for what this means for these Gentile Christians. He says that you now have this new obligation that involves a new responsibility. Listen as we read verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The question we are left asking here is this. So how does this work itself out in the day-to-day life of a Christian? Paul's letting them know that there are consequences of this new relationship in which they no longer have this obligation to live in the flesh. Following its desires, obeying its will. What we see here in verse 13 is a new term that Paul is introducing. It's this word called mortification. This introduces what would be the second aspect of sanctification, which is progressive. This is where we're going to shortly see where our responsibility comes into play. Murray would explain it this way. The believer's once for all death to the law of sin does not free him from the necessity of mortifying sin as members. It makes it necessary and possible for him to do so. As Pastor Bob has mentioned in several of his recent sermons in Romans This is where we see this common theme of how Paul is introducing an indicative, meaning what God has done for us in Christ, followed with an imperative, meaning what God commands us to do. This is where we find the Christian tension. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Because we often find ourselves reverting back to the person we no longer are. Paul wants these young Gentile Christians to understand they have this responsibility to mortify sins. But he wants them to know that they can only accomplish that through the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, for Paul, holiness of life is achieved neither by our own unaided effort, the era of moralism or legalism, nor by the Spirit apart from our participation. As some might insist, the key to holy living is surrender And let go and let God. Some use that phrase. Have you ever heard people use that phrase? Just surrender, just let go and let God would have it. That's not the proper phrase we should be saying. Why? Because we play a part. It's not just let go and let God. It's it's let go and act. Act like who he's called you to be. Live like he's called you to live. Put to death these deeds of the flesh and go and put on the spirit of of Christ. Replace anger with love, with compassion. There should be this change, this new obligation. There should be this desire to mortify these sins. Stott would define mortification as this process of putting to death the body's deeds. A clear sighted recognition of evil as evil, leading to such decisive and radical repudiation of it that no imagery can do justice except simply putting it to death. 
We see this theme in the Gospels when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Follow me. Which since Romans compelled a condemned criminal to carry his cross to the side of crucifixion, to carry our cross is symbolic of following Jesus to the place of execution. Think about that for a moment. And what we are to put to death there, Paul explains, is the misdeeds of the body. That is every use of our body, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet, which serve ourselves instead of God and other people. I want you to think about that for a moment in the casual workings of your everyday life. Do you often find yourself in the flesh? Or in the spirit, when you're gossiping about somebody else, when you're talking negatively about somebody else, when you're criticizing somebody else. What would Paul say here? When was the last time? And I'm speaking this to myself. You ask God to reveal every sin inside of you. So you could kill it and put it to death. We often think of being a Christian as praying a prayer and walking down an aisle. And that's it. I'm good. I got my get out of hell jail free card. This is a daily battle. We are at war. This is an active process. Mortifying daily dying to sin. Do you get the imagery? Do you get the picture, the process? I wonder what would change if we fully embrace this truth. Negatively, we must totally repudiate everything we know to be wrong, not even think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. It means we've got to pull it out, we've got to look at it, we've got to denounce it, and we've got to hate it for what it is, and then really deal with it. Really repent and turn from it. That means some men in the room, you might need to get an accountability partner for your life, for your computer, for your phone. You follow me? That means if you truly want to get rid of this in your life, you may have someone in your life who you can be accountable to. Positively, we are to set our minds on the things the Holy Spirit desires. We are to set our hearts on things above. We are to occupy our thoughts with what is noble, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely. Paul's teaching here that mortification, putting evil to death and aspiration, hungering and thirsting for what is good, are counterparts. He points out, if you go back to verse 5, set their minds in verse 13, put to death, set your mind, put to death, set your mind, put to death. These are in the present tense, which describe activities that should be continuous, that should be daily, that should be ongoing for the life of a Holy Spirit-led Christian. Paul is teaching this radical principle of Of life through death, which lies at the heart of the gospel message. Man, through COVID, so many people I've watched have let the noise of the world trump the gospel message. Churches aren't able to be who they're called to be because people aren't being who they're called to be in Christ. That's not why he did what he did in those first few verses that we saw. 
I can't speak to any person in here individually with how you're living or what you're All I can do is take my inventory of myself, my family, and know what I need to do or what I need to change. As we move into the last section of verses for our study this morning, Paul's going to focus on why we do this, because we have a new identity. We have a new identity. This is the last gift he mentions here through the Holy Spirit that we're given in verses 14 to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, they're sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This new identity as a son through adoption by God the Father to become an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ Jesus, this is amazing. Think about this picture. In verse 14, Paul is using this language in which the relation of the Holy Spirit to sons of God is presented as being like a shepherd to a sheep. Our Father, we're sons to Him. He wants to lead us. He wants to guide us. He wants to direct us. And Paul is emphasizing here that unless people are continually being led, indicated by the Greek present tense by the Holy Spirit, that they are not members of God's family. One can conclude that being led by God's Holy Spirit is the mark of genuineness of this relationship. It's a sign of assurance. So look at your life. Who's leading? How does a believer know they can be assured in their faith? They can see the Holy Spirit leading their life, actions, and behavior. Practically speaking, what does this mean? How do we know we're a son of God? We have evidence in our life that we are continually being led by the Spirit. Then in verse 15, he adds to that. Paul's explaining that the benefits of this adoption for the believer in Christ in which he states uh, they receive peace and security. Adoption is one of the privileges of Israel in which is regularly characterized as God's son or sons in the Old Testament and Judaism. Paul has taken that term that depicts Israel's unique status as God's people and he has now transferred it to Christians. Theologian Richard Longenecker's research on the laws pertaining to adoption of children and Greco-Roman society are important to note for a deeper appreciation and understanding of his term. Listen to this. He says, first, an adopted son was taken out of his previous situation and placed in an entirely new relationship to this new adopting father, which became his new family. Second, an adopted son started a new life as part of his new family with all his old debts canceled. It's amazing. All the old debts canceled. Third, an adopted son was considered no less important than any other biologically born son in his adopting father's family. And lastly, an adopted son experienced a changed status with his old dad, and he's given a new name. You no longer have to identify as that old sinner self. You are new in Christ Jesus. He created you. He knit you together to be exactly you. He wants you to be clothed with kindness, with love, with gentleness, with peace, with patience, with kindness. Christian, are we seeing the message? Are we getting it? Are we understanding what Paul is trying to tell these young Christians 
of what it means and what it looks like to live as a Christian. Adopting us, God has taken no half measures. We have been made full members of the family. That means we got full privileges belonging to the members of that family. Verse 16, we see this only occurrence of the word pneuma in Romans 8 that does not refer to the Holy Spirit. But this is used here where Paul uses this verb to mean bear witness with, by which Paul is involving our own spirit in the process of testifying to us that we are children of God. Paul is wanting them to make sure that they get it. That spirit that convicts you sometimes when you're doing wrong, bearing witness with the Holy Spirit. That spirit that leads you to do something right, that's bearing witness with you, that you are one of God's chosen, one of his loved, prized possessions. In verse 17, Paul is using this transitional statement that's connecting his description of the adoption as children that believers enjoy at the present time with his picture of the culmination of the full benefits. They are to receive the inheritance. The future aspects. Additionally, Paul is awarding this inheritance to the promise, promise to Abraham to all who have faith. Thus, those who are in Christ also become the seed of Abraham and heirs of the promise that Abraham received. Now, Paul here is describing Christians in this verse as children and heirs of the new age, recipients of what God has promised to his people as fellow heirs with Christ in which they are awaiting that glorious inheritance. Do you guys grab that? Do you realize one day we're going to stand before our Lord and Savior face to face and one day we're going to receive that full inheritance that's waiting for us? We may not get what we think we deserve here. We don't live for that, do we? We live for what we're going to get there. And we get distracted. Right? We get distracted and we think we should get what we deserve here. But that's not what Paul, he said. Listen, Christians, we're living for what? There. What's to come? What is to come? The condition Paul is setting before them, though, is this oneness with Christ means that they must now follow Christ's own road to glory. You know what that looks like? Suffering with him. We don't often like to hear that. That's not the popular phrase. The suffering Paul is alluding to involves, but it's not limited to daily anxieties, tensions, and persecutions. You know, this last week or so, I was teaching the youth group, and we were going through Mark exegetically. And one of the things we said is, is here's Jesus riding in on the full of a colt, and here he is, the crowd, and everybody's calling out to him, what? Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! They're shouting, they're excited, they're exclaiming to him. They're rejoicing, they love, they're excited. And then less than one week later, what are they yelling? Crucify him. Crucify him. Think about that, believer. We get to suffer with him. You understand what that means? That means that there's going to come a point in your life when people may abandon you. People may leave your side, but we don't fix our eyes on that, do we? We fix our eyes on Christ. We fix our eyes on Christ. So how does this passage on sanctification work out in the life and in the ministry? Paul's not presenting some type of second blessing, deeper life, or higher life theology. Rather, he's calling believers in Christ to cultivate a deeper appreciation, to experience the personal, the relational, and the participatory, the Christian message of life in Christ. Life in the Spirit and Christ by His Spirit being and controlling them in all aspects of life. Practically speaking, what Paul is proclaiming to them is that the Christian message comes to its high point through the spiritual gift of the Holy Spirit in which Christians can proclaim that therefore there is now no 
condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because new life has been given in Christ, positionally and progressively, in the Christian's life to live sanctified. Paul's thrust for all this Gentile Christians is to understand, to embrace, to live out this message. He's going to continue proclaiming this message until all Gentiles hear this truth. And then his hope is that they will partner with him in these gospel missionary initiatives so they could take the gospel message to every other Gentile that needs to hear the message of Christ. Imagine the impact that would take place in our individual lives and families and churches and communities our state, our country, and around the world, if Christians lived out the sanctified life in Christ of who we're called to be in Romans 8, 1 to 17. Personally, I believe revival would take place. I believe lostness would be decreased. And I believe Jesus would be glorified. And the kingdom, the big kingdom, would be advanced. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will continue to live lives, enabled through the Holy Spirit, and I'll continue to preach and teach every chance the Lord provides those that Jesus has entrusted to my care to do the same every chance I get until Christ returns or calls me home. What is our corporate responsibility to live as a sanctified church? What is our corporate responsibility to live out as a sanctified church? I want to close focusing on this. As Southern Baptists, we adhere to what's called the Baptist faith and message. A set of guidelines and principles and statements of faith that we believe. When we join church membership here, you go through a class with Pastor Bob. We covenant together with how we are going to play our part in our church. We take membership very seriously in, in every person and an active part in this body. We participate in a couple ordinances, believers' baptism and communion. The way that this corporate responsibility is lived out is when we as a whole live this out together. Church is not simply meant to be a place where you walk through these doors and listen to somebody preach a message and go out and live your individual life the way you want. Church is meant to be lived out in what he's talking about, not just individual, but us corporately as a body of Christ who is covenanted to come together. What has been keeping you from living that truth out As I close in prayer, here's my invitation to you. I don't know how the Spirit is speaking to you this morning, but I believe it's going to be in one of a few different ways. First, if you are an unbeliever, somebody who has never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, and you feel that Holy Spirit's tugging your heart, don't wait. Respond. Respond to that invitation, that free gift He's given. Second, I believe there are people in the individually who know that they're living more of their life controlled by the flesh as opposed to being controlled by the spirit and i believe the holy spirit is speaking to you right now in areas in which you know you are doing so 
You don't want to starve. You don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, do you? One of the ways we do that is when we don't repent. Meaning, confess our sins and then turn from those sins. I think some of us think live with no consequences. Cheap grace, cheap grace, God's grace. So maybe God is speaking to you, you need to repent. I don't know what it is, I don't know what it looks like. Individually. Maybe corporately, not been living as an active member who belongs to a body who is corporately to live out a sanctified life together. I would challenge you to pray about, seek out Pastor Bob or myself and ask ways in which you can start doing so. There are so many opportunities and needs and ways in which the body can step up to be the body. And last, has God placed somebody on your heart? Maybe somebody you need to forgive. Maybe somebody you know that needs to know that they are loved by Christ. Will you take an active step in praying for them? Reaching out to them at the right time and then sharing the love of Christ with them. I don't know how Christ is calling you to respond, but I've got to believe if we're listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, He's calling all of us to do something. So as I pray, speak to the Lord in your heart. If you have a chance and you want to write on the tear-off tab and you want to turn that in, you can do that. If you want to email us or let us know as pastors how God's been speaking to your heart, we would love to hear what He's been saying to you and what you're going to do different. Hey, by the way, going back to that one statement, maybe some of you men do need to follow up with that accountability I talked about. Maybe you don't recognize how much that's impacting your family. Let's get right with God. Father God, I I just pray that as we come to a close here, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to receive the truth that, that isn't always what we want to hear. And maybe it doesn't make us leaving here feeling all warm and gooey, Father God, and, and good. But, Lord Jesus, we know that it's, it's the surgery that needs to take place within our heart to get us back in right relationship with you. And so, Father God, I pray individually, whatever decision each person needs to make, that they would make that decision here before they walk out these doors, Father God. And I pray corporately as a church, I pray each person individually would examine how they can live out corporately in this body of Christ, whom they've chosen to covenant with, Lord Jesus, their relationship with you. Father God, let us be a church that wants to make a difference by how we live, by how we serve, and by how we love. Father, I ask this in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen.